0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are here today. Thank you that we have your word as our guide and as our food. We want to receive it with that intent and that aim today. And I pray that you'd help me to make clear what this text is all about and what it means by implication for our church ministry. Lord, we want today, I want to Help us to understand what it means for the church to be a family. And so I pray that that would be evident and clear in this passage, and that there would be, as a result of 1 Timothy 5, a deeper commitment to one another, a renewed understanding of what it means to be brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And so we, we pray that you would use your word today to teach us what it means to be everything that the church is intended to be for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we began our study in First Timothy, about the third or fourth message or so, I used a probably familiar uh, children's Sunday school little theme to remind you what the church is all about. For those of you who weren't here that Sunday, it goes something like this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Look inside and see all the mean people. No, that's not how it goes, right? But, but I, I, mean, I did reference that we look inside and see all the people. And I, and I was actually talking that Sunday about the fact that um, it's possible for people to do really hurtful and mean things in the context of the church. And I was using that illustration to identify that it's possible for someone to split a church, for someone to create a lot of problems. In fact, I would imagine and I've used this before, that there are some of you who are in what we would call the church recovery program. You know what I'm talking about? That you resonate actually with this idea of here's the church, here's a steeple look inside and see all the people. But for you, the concept of people in the church has a a little of a bad reputation with you. You were in some rough church meetings, you saw kind of church at its worst. And in fact, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here and I hope that we can maybe redeem what Happened in your past, and maybe show you a little bit different of the way that maybe church can be. That's what our, that's one of my aims. See, the reality is, is the church is a beautiful place, and when the church people act in a way that they're supposed to, the church really, frankly, becomes a little slice of heaven, a, a beautiful gathering of people that come from all walks of life, from different backgrounds, with. Different um, ethnicities, different socioeconomic um, upbringings, different status in life, different baggage. And we all come under the banner of Jesus is Lord. And the result is that there's a deep connection, a love uh, between us. And that's the vision of what God has for his church. And I think it's a compelling vision, a a vision, frankly, worth thinking about, worth leaning into, worth asking ourselves as a church of 4,000 people. So how do we do that? That's an important question. Because after all, if the church can't act and live like a family, then really, what's the point? So this morning, we're going to talk about what it means for the church to be a family, what it means to be. Be in a place where you belong, where you're loved, and you love others. What it means for the church to be a family. So how are we supposed to treat people if that's what the church is supposed to be? I'm presently listening to the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and theologian killed by the Nazis in 1945 for plotting uh, an assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote um prolific material on the nature of the church and part of the reason why he wrote so significantly was because he loved the church especially in the midst of the culture in which he lived he he wrote um for instance a book called life together a book that i would recommend for any every, every small group leader every abf leader anyone doing discipleship he he wrote this book in the middle of uh, or just after world war 1 when when germany was suffering all sorts of cultural um, hostilities, he, he wrote it in the midst of a lot of um, cultural fear, and, and even the things, the seeds that laid the groundwork for World War II were all in the air. And in the midst of that season, he he held up a lofty view of what the church was and what it could be, that in the midst of this culture that was so fractured, so fragmented, so um, hostile towards one another, that there was this culture within the culture of a people whose banner was the Lord Jesus In regards to what it means to do life together, here's what Bonhoeffer said. Christian community means community through and in Jesus Christ. Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened because living on their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. They need them solely for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, let me just translate that for you in a a very simple, simple concept. And it's this, you weren't meant to do the Christian life on your own. You weren't meant to walk by yourself. The the fact of the matter is this church was meant to be something where I need you and you you need me. I love you and you love me. And together we're this, forgive the rhyme, a happy family. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be this group of people who need each other, and under the banner of the Lordship of Christ, we figure out a way to be able to be family, in spite of all of the differences among us. Bonhoeffer's vision was one we need to think about. It relates to how the church is to be the church... And so these are the kind of questions we need to wrestle with this morning. What kind of relationship should people in the church have with one another? How how should they treat one another? How How should they, for instance, treat those who have special needs? What you need to understand is that these are really important questions, especially for a church our size. Because I would argue that if we can't answer those questions well, and if we can't care for one another, if we can't love one another, then what in the world are we doing here? The fact of the matter is, I hope that you've come today not just to receive content, have your brains filled with more Bible, or to sing songs that make you feel better and have sort of an emotional uplift, All those little things in and of themselves aren't bad. At the end of the day, if the church can't live out the gospel in terms of loving people for the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, then it may be a gathering of people, but it may not, in fact, really even be a church. The church is supposed to have this commonality, this love, this family dynamic to it. So in that respect, we're going to examine today and introduce this subject of what does it mean to practice church? What does it mean to put church into action? So today we're starting into 1 Timothy chapter 5, and in this chapter, Paul begins to give Timothy some very practical instructions as to how he is to shepherd this historic church in the city of Ephesus. Now last week we saw ten commands that Paul gave Timothy as to what was to characterize his pastoral ministry. And today marks a descent, beginning the descent of our study in First Timothy. We're beginning to wrap things up. And so is Paul in this book. By the way, if you're wondering, so where are we going next? Just a little highlight. We'll wrap this study up in First Timothy in May. And then over the summer, at least June and July, we'll be going back to the Psalms like we did last summer. And we'll be talking about a series of psalms that ask really hard questions about God and ourselves. The title of that will be Honest to God, Tough Questions from the Psalms. Now look at chapter 5 as a whole. Just a quick outline. This chapter is incredibly practical. Verses 1 to 6 that we're going to look at today, really mostly verses 1 and 2, deals with the question of how should we treat people. Then in verses... Um, Three all the way to 16, Paul deals specifically with how should we think about compassion. How do, we, how do we think biblically about meeting people's needs? And then finally, in verses 17 to 25, Paul gives some instruction about how to care for those who care for the church. So this, this whole chapter is very practical. It's sort of like a church manual, a, a series of instructions as to how this church is to interact with one another, how they're to engage and how they're to think about what it means to be the body of Christ. So our verses today introduce us to the way in which people in the church should be treated. And there's a noticeable theme that develops in this chapter, and it is the theme of family. This idea of being part of the family of God. Now Paul has already introduced this subject of family in chapter 3 in verse 15 when he refers to the church as God's household. But this theme of family is an important rubric or a lens through which we should be able to see not only the church at Ephesus, but also ourselves, to be able to understand that how we do church needs to fit with this notion of family, what it means to be a community within a community. In other words, we live in a dark and broken world, and seven... One day out of seven, we gather together from all over uh, the city of Indianapolis, and we come together, and in this moment, we live out what it means to be the church. We're a community within the broader community. We're family. But how so? Before we get into chapter 5, let me just take a step back even further and just Talk a minute about what it means to be a part of even the family of God in general. How does one even become part of God's family? Because the Bible paints a pretty clear picture that not all human beings are part of God's family. It would be safe to say that even all people who come on campus here today are not necessarily part of God's family. So what does that mean? Well, take your Bible, go over to John chapter 1, and look at verses 11 through 13. Where, where John addresses how one is brought into the family of God in the first place. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Here's what it says. He came to his own, meaning his own things, his own realm, his own culture, everything that he made. He came to his own things, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become, notice this, children of God. What a statement. He makes you a part of His family. By receiving Christ, you become part of the family of God. And then verse 13, He tells us, who were born, here's how it happened, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here's this spiritual birth that takes place that God by those by virtue of those who receive Christ as their Savior are now birthed into, they become part of God's family. The effect of this spiritual birth is a standing of spiritual adoption. That God takes people who were not a part of his family, who were in effect rebels, and he now adopts them and calls them his own sons and daughters. He makes them his children. And he does this based upon his sovereign purposes. Meaning that there's a plan in the mind of God that we marvel at and we don't fully understand. That undergirding the spiritual adoption, undergirding the receiving of Jesus, are spiritual and sovereign ends that God has that make us look at what is in the Bible and go, wow, this is unbelievable. For instance, listen to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 and 6. It says this In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, God adopts us as sons according to the purposes of His will... To the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, the whole aim of God adopting us and making us His children through the shed blood of Christ is not to make much of us. It is instead to make much of Himself. So when one rightly understands what it means to be a part of God's family, you marvel that God would ever, ever, ever welcome you in. That the end game of God's adopting you is to make you stand in awe of Him. In effect, for you to say, Why in the world me? that's the point the implication then of this spiritual birth based upon a relationship with jesus is stunning the implications of this are stunning and sweeping it it means that now there are real and living human beings who have a special and personal and fatherly connection to their creator such that they have a relationship with their creator god that's personal now, every once in a while, the Bible gets very close to touching the beauty and the glory of this concept. And Paul does so in Romans chapter 8. Look at this text. He says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then get this, then heirs. And heirs of God. And notice this, fellow heirs with Christ. What a statement. So God in His mercy and in His grace adopts people, brings them into His family by the shed blood of Jesus, endows upon them all of the rights and privileges of sonship, and even makes them a fellow heir with Christ. The effect of this is an unbelievable, overwhelming sense of awe as to what God has done. That God would love us in this way is just unbelievable and remarkable. Listen to 1 John 3.1. It's almost as though John nearly gives up. He's just so overwhelmed with the beauty of God's grace. He says this, "...see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are." He's just unbelievable that God would love us this way. Friends, this is why you need a regular dose of Sunday morning. It is to remind you that the world and the universe does not revolve around you. It revolves around God. He didn't save you to make much of you. He saved you to make much of himself. And the beautiful thing is the family of God is a group of people who understand these things, love these things, value these things, celebrate these things, and know that they are part of a family that they don't deserve. It it means that you're part of a family where God graciously welcomed you into that particular group of people, that family, even though you didn't formerly belong to that family, and a family you could have never joined on your own. It means that because of what Jesus accomplished, you have a a new relationship with the Father. And it means in in the midst of this world and culture that's marred and broken with sin, there is a community within the community. There's a culture within the culture that within the human race is a group of people who have a common relationship with Jesus and that relationship defines them regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of how much money they make, regardless of, of what their lot in life is and what their experiences have been, that on a regular basis there's a group of people who gather and the single thing that defines them is we believe that Jesus is Lord and that banner becomes the entrance into the household of God. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. So I've put on Christ. My identity now is Jesus. Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. You are all one in Christ. In other words, the defining mark of now who we are is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The effect of this then is that the church is family. And the vision that the Bible has of the church is more than just a gathering of people who come on Sundays to consume biblical content or to consume music or worship. The idea is that there are people coming from all these backgrounds, all these experiences, all these different paths, and all of these problems that they have in their life, but they share a common love, a common affinity, a common affection for Jesus. And the result is they are family. That's the vision. And we need to be reminded of this in the midst of a consumeristic, individualistic culture that simply wants, on Sundays, for instance, to know, so what does this mean for me? Well, I hope this means something for you, but I also need you to know that it's not all about you. There are things and there are relationships and dynamics in play here that relate to the way in which we are together as God's family. Now, with that overarching background of the importance of the concept of family and what it means for the church to be that let's turn now to specifics here in verses one to two and see some some general guidelines first of all as to how timothy is to conduct himself with four different groups of people paul addresses here how timothy is to conduct himself with older men older women younger men and younger women, and in all four cases, he uses a family metaphor. And in effect, what he is saying is that Timothy should treat these four groups in a family context. So let's see what he says. First, he says he is to treat older men as fathers. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So there's two commands that he gives him. First, don't rebuke him but secondly, encourage him. And then notice the way in which, the tone in which he is to do this. He is to do this as you would a father. What does he mean? Well, he means that Timothy is to pastor and shepherd these older men, but he's to do it in a unique way. He is to do it with respect and with honor. The word rebuke means to strike. It means to um, speak with strong disapproval, like like a, a verbal punishment, if you will. It's, it's the kind of words that a person in authority would use for someone when they are out of line. You know what I'm talking about? Someone with an authority and they're, they're, they're speaking words to get those under their care, under their supervision, back in line. So Timothy is clearly an authority figure here, but Paul wants him to recognize that these men need to be, these older men needed to be treated in a special way. Because while Timothy has authority, he needs to realize that these older men should also be respected. It was important for this young man to see that for older men to follow this young pastor was really a gift that they gave him. They followed him, not because of his vast years of experience. They followed him because he was the person that God, through Paul, had appointed in that role. And therefore, Timothy needed to lead them in a way that was respectful and honoring of their experience, and they needed to follow him in a way that was respectful and honoring of the authority that God had given him. I remember really well when I learned and saw this firsthand, I was just voted in at my former church. I was 25 years old, had no pastoral experience, and ironically was called the senior pastor. It's kind of funny. I had zero pastoral experience, let alone any senior pastor experience. Had no idea what I was doing. And I remember one Sunday, a after the church vote, the Sunday, the very Sunday after the church vote, and an older gentleman who'd been at the church for years greeted me at the door as he was coming in, shook my hand, and he said something I have never forgotten. He looked at me and said, "Well, there's my pastor. Good morning to you." And my tears. Tears of my eyes welled up because I had no credibility, no background, no experience to be given such honor. And here an older man just gave it because he was kind and because he understood something about pastoral ministry. So rather than rebuking an older man strongly, Timothy is to be respectful. He is to encourage him, it says here, as he would a father. The, the Greek word here means to ask for something or to make an appeal. In other words, because of this man's age and because of his experience and because just of the respect that he's due, Timothy shouldn't act as a bull in a china shop. Instead, he should be gentle and careful and respectful and honor this man's or the, these, this group of men and their life experience. Now, it's not that the older man gets a pass on godliness because he's old. No. Timothy is to shepherd him. But at the same time, Timothy needs to value these older men and treat them with the fatherly respect and kindness that they deserve. So they deserve to be shepherded through honorable appeal. So these aren't just older men. These are men who should be treated like fathers. Because after all, they're family. So if they're family, that changes how you see them, and it changes how you interact with them. So he's to treat older men as fathers. Secondly, he's to treat older women as mothers. We're going to skip over younger men and come back to it in the text. Paul continues here this theme and encourages Timothy to treat these older women in a way in which he would treat his own mother. So what does it mean to treat these older women like a a mother? Well, what, what does your mom want? Or let me put it this way, what were the things that really made her mad? How do we think of it that way, okay? So what does she want or what makes her really mad? And I would suggest, well, there's many, many things that she might want and many things that might make her mad. Two things that primarily make a mother mad is either when she doesn't feel loved or, secondly, isn't listened to. Think back at your life when you really got in trouble I mean, when you really got it from your mom. Wasn't it often because either you didn't love her or were disrespectful in some way, didn't treat her the way that she really deserved because she was your mother? Or maybe your dad stepped in and said, hey, you kids, you know, don't treat your mother this way. Why did he step in? Because a mom deserves to be loved and secondly, also to be listened to. In this respect, Timothy is to treat these older women in the same way. They are to be loved and they are to be listened to. They they weren't biological mothers, but they needed to be treated as such because, in effect, they were family. Additionally, they, as mothers, needed to be cared for when they were in need. And and this sets us up for something that we're going to look at in the future, that that these women needed to be cared for as if they were your very own mother. And what would you do if your mom was in need? Well, you certainly would care for her, and therefore the church is to see people through this lens that older women are to be treated like that. Really ironic or providential. While I was writing this sermon, I got an email message from Don Helton, our pastor of student ministries, um, in an email inviting all of our high school students to um, a, a paint or a fence painting party for an older woman in our church. Here's a picture from what the teenagers were doing on Saturday afternoon. And there they are, using a gorgeous Saturday afternoon to be able to bless some older woman in our congregation to paint her fence. And when I saw that, I said, yet that's right. That's what the family of God ought to do. Now, the reason I put older men and older women together here at the very beginning is for a very specific reason. I skipped over the younger men. We'll come back to it. But I wanted to group these two together because I don't want you to miss the fact of something that should be very apparent but you might overlook. And it's the simple fact that older people were in this church. You see, there's something really valuable about a church that has an intergenerational quality to it. There's... Various movements within evangelical Christianity, and one of them is to so fracture and segment the church that all of the people in the room are all the same age. I remember going to one of these worship services one time, and I walked away going, all this is is a youth group for 30-year-olds. That's what it felt like. And the reality is, if the church isn't multi-generational, something very significant is lost. The church needs young people, but it also needs older people who have lots of experience. It needs young people with lots of enthusiasm and old people with lots of context. It needs young people with with lots of energy and older folks who have lots of wisdom. The church needs both. And in light of that, can I just issue a challenge to you? Be sure that somewhere in the context of your sphere of relationships, be sure that somewhere in your multitude of counselors, that there's a couple people, at least one, who's at least 20 years older than you, or at least has gray hair or not much of it. <laughs> and not by choice, by the way. So, you, you, you need people who have experience. If you have all your friends giving you advice, you're going to get bad advice. You need people who are older, who have gone through various seasons, who know the ups and downs of life, who've lived through economic booms and also busts, who know what what it's like to live in marriage for 50 years, who knows what it's like to raise kids, to bury people, and to be able to walk through life over many, many years. If you get a chance to be able to sit down with such a person, don't waste that chance. Ask them lots of questions and dial into their life because you'll be surprised what you learn. And let me also just say to those of you who are in that older category, over forty-one. Okay. Um, if you're if you're in that, that 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 line, by the way, is going to keep moving every every year. Right about this time, it's just going to keep moving. So if you're if you're older than if you're old and over forty-one, then listen to me. You you may you may wonder, what in the world do I have to offer? everything's moving, changing around me. I was here to tell you, you have so much to offer. Don't for a minute think that God can't use you to speak in the life of a young person, to give a married couple some kind of counsel. Or You have unbelievable life experience. Use it for the glory of God. Do not sit on the sideline. This church needs you. Our young people need you. And please, for the glory of God, get in the game and be a part of what it means to build into people's lives. This church needs you. Third, he's to treat younger men as brothers. Younger men as brothers. He's in a position of authority, but he's to treat them as his peers. They all belong to the same family, after all. They have a common bond that goes beyond just titles and positions. To call them his brothers and to view them as his brothers means that there's a depth of relationship among them. In the same way that brothers are inexorably linked together in the same family. You can't unbrother somebody, so are two brothers in Christ. That means that the relationships formed between brothers, even within this church, need to understand, you need to understand something about those relationships. Those relationships are incredibly important because we live in a world broken by sin and incredibly challenging. And the effect of that is that brother to brother, we need to walk through life together. To understand that brother to brother, there, there's a spiritual band of brotherhood who love one another in a depth that could have only been created by God's grace. So man, I want to speak to you. you. You need to see yourself as brothers to other men in this church. You need to view your commitment to one another as more than just a casual acquaintance. You need to treat one another with the kindliness of and camaraderie of what it means to be family, but even more, you need to be deeply committed to one another, to walk through tough times together, to speak hard things, to watch one another's backs, to realize that if you're blood, then you get in someone's grill and you watch their back, but you don't leave them because you are their brother. After all, we are part of the same family. So the body Christ is supposed to be. We're supposed to treat young men as brothers fourth we're supposed to treat young women as sisters and then he adds here in all purity i I love the practicality of this book because paul here addresses four really important groups within the church and he addresses particularly a group that you might just simply ignore but the reality is timothy as this young pastor has to still shepherd young women he has to they can't be ignored just because they're women and he's a man he has to be able to shepherd them. So how does he do that? Well, he adds this beautiful statement of he's supposed to shepherd them as, a, as if they were his sister. And why? Well, obviously because of the potential perception or the real danger of sexual impropriety, Paul wants Timothy to understand how he's to shepherd these young women, which is why he adds this little phrase, "...in all purity." So he's to treat these young women with love and concern, the kind of love that one would have with a sister. So his motives and his actions must always be honorable. And I suspect Paul is not only speaking to Timothy, but he's also speaking to these young women, wanting them to be honorable as he is also to be honorable. That, these, that Timothy and these young women, there are boundaries that they need to keep. I need to understand there are boundaries in these relationships appropriate boundaries i mean don't you love the bible don't we need to hear this today i mean in one respect to be able to know that older men and women are to be respected that's not something that's talked about often in our culture let alone valued. and as well that there's boundaries between young men and women what a what a wise book we have in the scriptures so in the midst of a culture that often promotes and often views young women like objects paul calls the church to be radically different He doesn't ignore the issue, and he gives us a model that's really helpful. So young men and women are not to use the church as their Christian meat market. You know what I mean by that? And on the other hand, the church shouldn't be a place devoid of relationships between young men and women, like women sit on this side and young men sit on this side. There should be an ability to have a mature relationship within the context of appropriate boundaries. Paul says we are to treat one another like family. After all, family is what they really are. So the church is this family. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. The church is to be a group of people who love and care for one another in a way that highlights the common bond that unites them. I mean, just think of it. Look, just look around this room. The people in this room are not just fellow people who go to this church. They are people who are part of the same family. Meaning that your relationship to one another, and not to every person in this room, but to some people in this room, needs to be close and intimate and personal. Someone who's got your back. And if not, then my question is, what are what are we to you? What is this church to you? Just a place that you come and get? A place that you come and get information? Or is it a place that heart to heart you are knit and someone's got your back and you've got theirs? That's what the family of God is supposed to be. Let me just speak to another issue, and that may be this, that some of you may not even belong to the family of God at all. By that I mean you may be here today, and the the bottom, frankly, has completely dropped out of your life. It may be that your earthly family has proven to be a huge disappointment or even extremely hurtful. It may be that you don't even know what it means to be a child of God. And, and what I'd love to do today is to invite you to become part of God's family, a, a group of people who have come to the understanding that their greatest need in all of the world is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. The reality is, if you've grown weary of the path and the consequences of your sin, I invite you today to turn. The Bible calls it repent. Turn from your sin to invite Christ to become your Savior and Lord, and then you become part of God's family, the kind of family that your heart knows you need, the kind of family that you've always dreamed about. John chapter 1 puts it this way, but to all who did who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So the church of Jesus Christ is a family. Now, Finally, I want to talk just briefly about introducing some special guidelines. Every once in a while, in the context of the church, there are people with special needs that the church needs to step up and help with. Or individually, we need to realize look, this is, I need to help here because they're family. And Paul gives some very specific instructions about how to treat certain people. In particular, he begins a section in verse 3 all the way to 16 where he talks about how to care for widows. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Now, next week, next week I'm going to walk you all the way through this text all the way down to verse 16 and explain what Paul says here and how it relates to the issue of compassion. But today I simply want to introduce for you at a fairly high level the idea of a compassion ministry as a part of the church is simply an overflow of the gospel and the natural part of what it means to be the family of God. I mean, this makes sense, doesn't it? When someone in your family is hurting, you go and help. That's what families do. In fact, when we moved here from Indianapolis and we left, or from um, Michigan to Indianapolis, and we left all of our family back in Michigan, I, I realized you know, how hard that really is when all of your kids are sick and you have to take someone to the doctor remember my my wife calling me and saying, who do I call and bring our sick kids over to their house? Well, eventually we found some dear soul who decided to take our kids for us in that environment. But at that moment, it suddenly hits you. This is what family is for. Family shows up in the darkest of dark and hardest of hard moments. And what Paul is saying is that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be like that at some level. Notice how much time Paul spends. Verse 3 all the way to verse 16, he talks about how one is to care for widows. Why does he, why does he talk about this? Why does he spend so much time? Here's why. The compassion element of the church is extremely important because If people really understand what the gospel is and they really understand what Jesus has done and they understand how gracious God has been with them, the net effect of that is they are going to be concerned about other people. James chapter 1, verse 27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Do you hear that? One of the key characteristics of the church is not just what you know, but it's who you really care for and how you care for those people, how you build into their life and how you pour your life on life into theirs. This goes way back in the history of God's people, all the way back even to the Old Testament in terms of how God wants His people to live. It's a part of God's very nature to be concerned about people who are hurting or those who are the outcasts. Listen to Deuteronomy 10:17 for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God who is not partial or takes no and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then he adds this, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, listen, God is concerned for the fatherless, He's concerned for the widow, He's concerned for the sojourner. And what's more, those who have been the recipient of God's kindness ought to demonstrate their understanding of God's grace and His kindness by being concerned for the welfare of others. After all, they're part of God's family. And even if they're outside of the family, as a member of God's family, having been grafted in, you ought to have a concern and a love for those people in their need. For that matter, when this doesn't happen when the church becomes just more about its own needs and isn't concerned about the needs of others, God is deeply disturbed and judgment comes. Those of you who grew up in church are likely familiar with the little statement in the Bible that goes like this, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Many of you, probably like me, grew up hearing that as an evangelistic verse, and maybe you can use it for evangelism, but do you, know, do you know what the sins are that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 1? Listen, Isaiah 1.15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God is getting after His people. He then says this, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Here they come. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. What are the sins that are like scarlet? Charlotte, the sins are a lack of compassion. They are the sins of injustice. It is people who belong to the family of God who aren't acting like the family of God. Those are the sins that God is concerned about. God is deeply concerned about those who are the most needy and He expects His children to have the same heart. The issue really... I bottom line it, the issue is whether or not a person really understands what the love of God is all about. 1 John 1 makes it painfully clear. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The answer, obviously, is it doesn't. Little children, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You're part of God's family. And the effect of that means you need to take care of one another. We need to take care of each other and be concerned about people who are in need. So do you see how this connects to the practical ways in which we are to treat people? The reality is, is that this good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, it, it changes not only our relationship with God, but it also changes our relationships with people, especially hurting and needy people. If you grew up with a younger brother, younger sister, or maybe one that was challenged in some ways, you know that when you went out in public and your younger brother or younger sister acted kind of silly, that your parents wanted you to stick up for him or her because, after all, you were her brother or his brother. And even though they act a little silly, at the end of the day, family sticks with family, and blood is blood, and you defend, and you are proud of your brother or sister, even though they may be a little immature or a little bit different. At the end of the day, the family relationship trumps everything else. So you have anybody in your life who's a little challenging to deal with? Anybody in the hallway that you'll talk with today that's kind of like an emotional leech? Mm -hmm. Got anybody who you see an email come from you're like oh boy ah. somebody who in your world is a little hard to deal with someone who's got a lot of need got any needy people in your orbit i hope you do because every family has them and the fact of the matter is god calls us to be the kind of people who love them because they really are family the church is supposed to be a community of grace in the midst of a world filled with sin and pain The church is supposed to be a place where transformed people treat one another with a kindly graciousness because they are family. And because of what Jesus has done and because of who He is and because of what He has done to us, they are to be treated like family because after all, that's exactly what they really are. So Father, help us to love each other this way. To Through difficulties and trials, through hardships, through scenarios and situations that are annoying and challenging and costly. Help us to see our role as members of this beautiful thing called the body of Christ, the family of God. And I pray today that some might even decide on this day you helping them, that they need to turn from their sins and run to Jesus and become a child of God. So help us to love one another. Help us to take care of one another. Help us to really be the family of God that you intended the church of Jesus Christ to be for your glory. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need someone to pray with you afterwards, you need someone to care for you, there's some folks up here every week. They're here just to be able to care for you. They're here to pray for you, okay? All right. Couch Park, I love you. God bless you.